Welcome, my dear listeners, to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. On today's show, we talk to Andy Johnson, who tells us all about his journey quitting a high-powered job where he was making great money, but to the detriment of his mental and physical well-being. Some of you listening right now could also be itching to quit your job because you don't love it or it's not fulfilling or whatever reason you have. Andy is a great example of how you can plan ahead and leave gracefully with as little risk as possible. Andy's intentionality, his strong financial position, his exit planning, and strategy are things that are important in any market, especially in today's uncertain environment. Be sure to listen carefully to Andy and glean from his experience on how you might apply some of what he did to your own situation. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and joining me today is the peerless Kyle Mast. Thanks, Mindy. It's good to be here with you. As always, this is a good one. This is a great one. Kyle and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. Whether you want to retire early, travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, or buy a whole bunch of rental properties after you quit your job, we'll help you reach your financial goals, get money out of the way, so that you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Kyle, I am so excited to bring Andy's story to our listeners because he has an absolutely repeatable, really awesome story of buying cash-flowing rental properties from a position of having an educated plan and then taking action, which is really what it's all about. Yeah, it's so good. Let's get into it. I had a ton of fun talking to this guy today. This this is amazing. Yeah, he's awesome. All right, let's bring in Andy. Andy Johnson is a real estate investor who managed to quit his full-time job in the finance industry and buy over 30 rental properties in one year. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. 
It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Andy, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today, and I want to know how you bought 30 rental properties. But before that, Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Let's jump right into it because I have like a billion questions. What year was this mythical year that you quit your job and what was your actual profession in the finance industry? Sure. So um, our little company that I worked for uh, arranged financing for physician-owned real estate. So the simplest analogy I could give you is that we were sort of like a mortgage broker that you might have for traditional residential properties, but it was on the commercial side. And then more specifically, it was niched down to physician-owned real estate. So that could include medical office buildings, surgery, centers, hospitals. They hired us as a consultant to arrange financing. And uh, I worked at that job from 2013 when I left school with my MBA and um, quit almost exactly six years later in uh, May of 2019. And how did you discover the concept of FIRE? FIRE, yes. So I found it pretty quickly. Uh, so like I said, I started my first full-time job in 2013 by 2014, I stumbled across it. And this was a result of some sort of Googling during work, I believe, of sort of personal finance tips, how to sort of uh, strengthen your personal financial position. And I stumbled across Mr. Money Mustache. And so that was my uh, initial uh, introduction to the world of fire and sort of it went from there found all of the typical sources that everyone said on here <laughs> but started with mr money mustache like so many others okay so it sounds like uh employers if you want to keep your employees don't give them access to google that's right i remember they did what was it we had like facebook banned or something but they i guess they didn't ban google and uh quick to spend my spare time researching things like that yeah if you can block the mr money mustache website that would take care of half the guests we've had on here probably you don't even have to do google okay let's move on to the next uh stage of your life you know you had this job which sounds you know, it's super exciting. You know, I'm a broker for finance for doctors. It's actually really exciting to me. That sounds, I would love to dive into that a little bit more. That kind of niche is pretty rare. Um, but like what, what happened next? You found this fire concept and you're, you're doing it at work. So I'm, my guess is usually when someone's looking up that stuff at work, they're thinking, Hmm, what's my exit strategy? You know, in case I need to exit at some point, what am I going to do? So what, what were you thinking? And then what happened next? Yeah. So the company I worked for was a very, very small company. I was the fifth employee um, there. And it was 
unstable to say the least um it was being in the sort of financing industry you know supply and demand can be influenced by outside forces and things can slow down very quickly i knew i knew from hearing from the other um individuals that worked there that they had a very hard time during the financial crisis of 2008 2010 and that they essentially everything stopped and they didn't receive income for several months so with that, even though I was a sort of entry level new employee, uh, my income was still very much tied to the performance of the company. That's sort of how the primary owner had set everything up. Um, so I had incredible fluctuations in income. Um, I started around 48,000. The next year, 147,000. The next year, 58,000. So it was, it was very, very volatile. And my personality type was always one that wants stability and security. And, you know, this in a vacuum, this probably wouldn't have been the job or type of um, salary structure that I would have looked for. I probably would have been someone that would be, would have been more attracted to, um, a job with a more consistent income, but, um, I didn't have many options. Uh, I'm originally from England, uh, came to play college tennis, uh, did my MBA to stay in the country, essentially. Uh, after doing my undergrad, found this job where I interned during the summer. And I basically needed to find a company that would sponsor me. And sponsor, it's it's a term that where you basically get a work visa, specifically an H-1B visa um, to work for a company. And you're tied to them. So your, your immigration status is as an employee of this company. Um, and that was what it was for me for the first, uh, three years that I worked there. Um, but with the volatile income, with knowing that I was sort of stuck there to, to an extent, I wanted to create my own stability. And that was really where fire came in, I think, um, because I aggressively wanted to start saving even on, even with the extent of where I knew I'd have low income some years, higher other years, I wanted to set up my lifestyle at the low end, knowing that then naturally I'm going to save a ton during the, the high income years. This was in central Florida. So it's sort of like a, I would say a mid cost of living area, um, but with no state income tax. So some, some benefits there as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I continued to, to work that work my way up in that company fairly quickly started as an intern in 2012 started full time in 2013 um by 2016 i'd become uh, I'd sort of positioned myself in a way that um i was offered to join the company as sort of a partner as an equity owner and with that came some nice salary bumps and we had some good years there um but the the sort of um the transition, the fact that it was so quick, it's my responsibilities were ramping up just as quickly. And that was very stressful. And it was, uh, it was tough. I could, I could sort of feel the burnout <laughs> for, for a good couple of years there from after, um, I became a partner and it sort of built upon itself. Um, I had no plan, uh, to leave when I did. It was more of a sort of mental health and lifestyle decision. In May of 2019, my body basically said, nope. <laughs> and at this, at this point, I should say that I, I had married a US citizen, so had a green card. So finally was released from those shackles, so to speak, and, uh, 
could explore other options. So yeah, I quit in May of 19 with, you know, no specific, um, financial plan, no transition plan. I, I just quit and, and took a break for a while. So that was sort of the transition. What was your financial situation in May of 2019 when you quit? Yeah. So I would categorize it as sort of lean fi or, or more specifically, I would say that we were financially independent on our current expenses, but I knew that our expenses at that time weren't sustainable. So I knew we weren't truly financially independent for a couple of reasons. One, we wanted to, well, I suppose I'd describe it as, as do negative geo arbitrage and move to Denver, <laughs> which is a more expensive cost of living. So the opposite of what they preach. Um, and then also we planned to start a family, uh, have kids eventually. So I knew our expenses would go up, but we were secure. We had a strong financial position. Um, even with um, my wife who worked as as, as a zookeeper and, and still does, um, you know, we could sort of almost scrape by just with her income, even though it's, it's very much on the lower end in that profession. So that it certainly wasn't a uh, financial catastrophe, me leaving. Um, additionally, I sort of negotiated my buyout from the company since I was an equity partner. So I had... Um, a reasonable, reasonably sized buyout coming um, in early 2020. So I knew that was going to provide a little cushion as well. Um, but yeah, so we were, we were sort of, we were, we were okay, but I was, I was certainly looking at options to sort of bolster our situation and become uh, more financially secure. Wow. I, I have like 17 questions. Um, so so the first, the first, well, I just will make a comment maybe, and I, we don't need to dive into it, but I, I just find it really interesting, uh, this visa situation and being tied to an employer. Like that's a variable that a lot of people don't have to deal with. Um, people feel like they're tied to their employer, but you actually were, you know, like this, this is like, this is a real, a real thing. So, I mean, it, we can maybe just flesh that out real quick, you know, like what was, you know, and along with that, were you thinking and planning, you know, as soon as you realize you're tied to this employer and you, you, and somewhere in those years, you realize, uh, maybe I don't want to be here forever. You know, what's, what's your planning mindset? Because I'm picking up from you, uh, you're, you're making some smart decisions. You're thinking ahead. You're reading online. You're an intentional guy. So you're, I know you're thinking about something like what, who are you? You know, maybe. Maybe there's role models or anybody you're looking at out there that is kind of an example that you're looking at, like, this is kind of where I want to transition my life to so that when I have a family, like, what, what was your mindset when you're kind of in that? I wouldn't say golden handcuffs. I maybe just like immigration handcuffs or something. I don't know what you would call it. Um, but you know, what, what were you thinking and how are you planning for that? Yeah. Great question. So I, I think it really transitioned from sort of immigration handcuffs to golden handcuffs. So it actually, it did make that transition because, and, and initially, I mean, so when I was interning there, like I said, I mean, I was dating my now wife. I really wanted to stay in the country and it's not easy. It's not easy because 95% of your typical companies, your S&P 500 companies are not going to sponsor an immigrant on an H-1B visa, especially if they can source those recruits from US citizens. It's just more costly. It's more complicated, et cetera. So I sort of, as soon as I started interning and realized that, you know, this was a, a good opportunity, um, I sort of 
targeted the H1B visa. And I did that by trying to make myself hard to replace. Um, so I, I, I brought a sort of Bloomberg terminal, um, onto our team that we used, uh, with our financing deals. And I took the lead on how to use that. And I was the only one who could use it. <laughs> so when the, when the, time came for me to present this option because they'd never heard of it. They'd never sponsored anyone before. Um, I, I could present it in such a way that I would take care of all the complicating immigration aspects. Um, and you know, I really made it somewhat of a no brainer for them. So that was the first part was, was getting there. And then once I had it, like, like you said, I was very much tied to the company. I would say my mindset at the time, especially after finding financial independence, retire early was like race to fire. Um, for better or worse, I didn't, I didn't really, um, even after I got married in 2017, early 2017, I didn't really contemplate switching employers so much because I really did think I had a very good thing going with this company as it related to opportunities for um, advancement. I mean, I, I saw a path to earning a very high income in the sense that um, my sort of uh, primary boss there was really targeting me as a sort of um, to take over the company one day. He was in his seventies, so he was already older. And I felt that I had that opportunity and it was something that, you know, I couldn't pass up. And so I really, but at the same time, um, I felt the stress of the responsibilities that had escalated quickly. And, you know, I struggled with that. And when, so when we, it transitioned to more of financial handcuffs, it, there was also, in addition to the golden handcuffs, I would say there was a, a sort of fear of letting down the other employees. We'd grown a bit at this point. We had like eight or nine employees. And I, I perhaps foolishly thought that, you know, if I were to leave, I'm going to screw all of these other <laughs> individuals. And of course, everyone's replaceable. So it's, it's not nearly as dramatic as your mind leads you to believe, but that's, that was the thought process that I had at the time. And. I knew I didn't want to take over the company, but I knew I had the option for, I didn't see another path to um, earning what I was earning at that time. And so I was planning to uh, carry on for a good few, you know, a few more years. I felt like I, I just had to dig it out for a few more years and I would be very comfortably financially independent. So that was the plan. But like I said, in, in May of 19, my body said, nope. <laughs> it was, it was, I was so stressed that I just one day I had to call up my boss and say, I can't come in today and I'm not coming in again. I, I wasn't able to really um, give any sort of notice, but he, he totally understood. And he gave me sort of three months to consider um, if that was truly uh, the path I had to take. And, you know, so we, we communicated during that time, but, but it, ultimately it was, I, I did have to leave and I was thankful that I was no longer tied on the immigration side. So I could, I could take that step. So that, that was the, that was the plan. And, you know, the plan didn't work out quite. Let's dive into that a little bit. What was your body telling you? How did you like, and what was going on at work that made your body feel like this? The funny thing is I did not work long hours. The hours were very reasonable. Um, it was, you know, I did not work too much more than 40 hours a week, which I know is, is, is great. Um, some people work much, much more than that. But when I was home, I 
could not switch off. Um, I had ownership of a lot of these large financing transactions where I was the individual that knew what was happening, had to solve the problems, had to get to the closing table. We only got paid when we closed. We weren't paid uh, during the term of these deals. So there, it, it was a lot of pressure, I suppose. I My body was basically, I was stressed all day and night. It was affecting my sleep. And, you know, it got to the point that where shortly before I, I even think I, I'm pretty sure I had a panic attack about it. Um, and I think it was when uh, one of the other partners was going on vacation or something. And I had to take on some additional load, mental load of these deals. And yeah, I was, I was just, I was just, I was trying so hard to push through. And I think that had been going on for a couple of years, honestly. Like, I don't think this happened all of a sudden. I think I was pushing myself uh, for quite a while there. And yeah, I mean, when I was when I was just sitting there on my couch thinking about the problems in the deals and not being able to switch off from work, even though I wasn't physically there, um, it just became overwhelming. I've been in that same position. I've been in real estate transactions that don't allow me to sleep because I can't shut off my brain because there's so many problems happening and I take them personally. Like, even though I'm not the one causing them, I'm still freaking out that my client's going to lose their earnest money or my, my seller isn't going to sell their house or, you know, whatever. And I can't even imagine on an even larger scale, such as, you know, buying a, a medical office or something. So I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, I also heard you say that you were supposed to get a payout in early 2020. And I don't know if you paid attention to other news in early 2020, but there was a little thing called uh, COVID happening. Maybe you've forgotten because it was just a blip on the screen and then it went away. Uh, did you actually get your payout in 2020? I did. It worked out well. So we our operating agreement had some sort of uh, prescribed buyout over a three-year period based on the performance of the company. Company. Um, but I honestly, that stressed me out knowing that, especially when I had no control over the performance of the company. And this was well before COVID was on the horizon because it was back in May of 19. And so um, I negotiated that buyout. Um, I took by projections would be a lower buyout over those three years, but I would get it in one lump sum. It was $200,000. So it was a fairly meaningful chunk of change. And Basically, I, you know, my tax optimization, which is always a, a fun hobby of mine that I pursued throughout my professional career, um, said, hey, I, I want to get that on January 1, 2020, when I have no other income. Um, so that that was why I asked for that, because even though I only worked five months in 2019, we actually had a very, very good five months. So 2019 income wasn't dissimilar from 2018 income. Uh, so, yes, I received that on, on January 1st, um, 2020. So good. That is... Listen, everybody, this is huge. I mean, the amount of taxes that he saved just by doing that is incredible. Were you married at that point? I was married. So he got it on January 2020. And because it was a capital buyout, that's a long-term capital gain. And and um, now my basis in it was zero because I didn't have to actually put up change to buy in. So it was a very large capital gain um, of that full amount, essentially. But we really uh, tax hacked that buyout <laughs> in the sense that um, we I maxed out a solo 401k that I'd been using for some time. Um, I took advantage of <laughs> the COVID drawdown and did some tax loss harvesting, which directly offsets the gain from uh, by taking the capital loss on my brokerage account. Uh, we even set up a donor advised fund and made a big charitable 
contribution. So I think I paid about $1,500 in tax on that. So it was a very good effective tax rate. <laughs> what? Speaking my language. This is what I'm talking about. Okay, the, the, okay, there's a big one in there that he threw out there, and this is the one people miss. I stalled my firm in, in 2020. The bottom of COVID was a huge opportunity to convert to Roth IRAs or do a tax loss harvest thing. So basically, you can tax loss harvest. There's some some waiting that you got to do with your investments to like buy back into it. But because he had such a huge gain, 200000 and he said zero in basis, that means that whole 200000 is taxable. Uh, he took some of these losses that we saw in COVID to offset that. And then I'm guessing probably reinvested it very si- in a very similar investment, but different enough that you don't uh, run into the wash sale rules where you can't buy back the exact same thing. And then you get all the run up with COVID afterwards on the market. You're essentially invested in the same thing, but you get the tax loss to offset your income. And then you got the solo 401k. You, you, you crushed it. I mean, this is, that's, that's good stuff. I, I love it. Yeah. And some of it was, some of it was a natural, um, rebalancing as well. So I, I sat down to rebalance after the really, cause I did have some bonds, um, in my portfolio as well. So I rebalanced in March of 2020, which was, which was just luck that I chose then. I basically rebalance when I see that there's sort of a five plus percent difference in my asset allocation. And at that time I saw there was. And so in addition to sort of, um, intentional tax loss harvesting, some of it was just, just natural rebalancing balancing that I did with more my portfolio as well. Yeah. And this is, you know, we we talk on this show and a lot of pers- good personal finance advice is not about timing the market. This is not timing the market. This is financial planning. He knew he had income in the year, $200,000 and he's looking for opportunities to offset that. Tax savings, it's one of the few guaranteed income things you can do out there. There's there's tangible things that you can do. It's You're not playing the market. You're not playing chance with things. He saw an opportunity when the market went down. It could have gone down further from March you know, when he happened to sell it. But it's his goal is still the same. He still would have harvested some that still would have helped him. So when we, you know, when we're saying this, you know, people might, oh, he was lucky. We did. Well, yeah, the timing is lucky, but that was not the goal. The goal was financial planning and you just happen to get a cherry on top, a very big cherry. Uh, but that's, that's awesome. That, that's, that's good stuff. I love it. I want to know if you did this yourself or did you get advice from a tax professional? You said that your, uh, tax planning is your big thing. Yeah. Um, more or less myself. Yeah. So I, I had a fairly robust taxable brokerage, um, and fairly minimal comparatively sort of retirement savings. Cause for the first four, it was almost I think it was five years. It was four, between four and five years that I worked at this company. They had no 401k. This was a tiny company. They didn't offer one. So the only opportunity I had beyond sort of IRAs, Roth IRAs to contribute to retirement savings was once I set up my solo 401k when I was a, a partner, when I was receiving K1 income. So it was actually self-employment income that I could then create that vehicle to protect, you know, to protect myself from taxes. But before that, everything was taxable brokerage. So that meant that I knew I had a larger opportunity than most in to 
sort of optimize my taxes through things like tax tax loss harvesting. So I did it myself. It was through research uh, in all the normal fire blogs. I think Physician on Fire had one of the very good ones about tax loss harvesting. And yeah, I just done done a lot of uh, research through blog articles and um, and did it myself in Vanguard at the time. Yeah. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. 
BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. You're trying to save trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. In the beginning of this episode, I alluded to the fact that you bought 30 rental properties in one year. Did you use some of this $200,000 payout to invest in real estate? Yes. So first of all, that's slightly overstated. It's not, it's not 30. Um, so I, I acquired 21 units in, in 10 months and that was at this time. Yeah. So, and I did use the buyout towards that, um, towards those purchases. So, I had owned, I'd bought a rental property in 2015 locally to me in central Florida. Um, and you know, that was, that was it. I'd owned that in my primary residence. Um, I, I went about six months after I quit my job in May of 19 without, um, doing anything that could possibly be classified as work. Um, I just decompressed, uh, went for a lot of bike rides and it was great. I mean, it really cleared my head and, and got my gears turning about possible, opportunities that I could uh, take advantage of going forward. And it was right towards the end of 2019 that um, I decided there was a good opportunity here to uh, basically, I was very much aware of how ridiculously cheap debt was at the time. And this was before it got down to its low, low lows um, in COVID. And I, I had some little experience with uh, rental real estate I knew I had the time and I knew I had the, uh, the sort of experience from my professional job, which is basically managing transactions, uh, through a bunch of teams. So it's, I knew I had the ability to, um, buy these rental properties. And the reason I did it very quickly was very intentional because I knew I had a ticking, ticking clock of how long I could qualify for mortgages. Um, I had income in early 2019, um, and it's sort of, you know, it's K1 income. So it doesn't, it, it's not like a, I'm getting a monthly paycheck or anything like that. And I knew I had this big buyout in 2020, so I could show income in 2020 as well, 
but um, I then wasn't getting another cent after January 1st. So I knew, um, you know, once the lender realized there wasn't monthly income coming in after that, it was going to dry up for me as the borrower. Um, so I wanted to sort of take advantage of that. And yeah, I basically did a ton of research on possible markets. I knew I wanted to go out of, out of my market um, in central Florida and um, essentially through bigger pockets did a lot of research on um, what the best option was for me. And I, I basically did a toned down version of the Burr method that I'm, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with and um, bought distressed properties um, in cash, which was a mixture of using that buyout that we discussed. I had a HELOC on my primary residence and I used margin on my fairly robust brokerage account. So I was essentially my own hard money lender is how I thought of it. Um, and would take these short-term loans from my HELOC or use cash or use margin to buy distressed properties. Started with a lot of HUD foreclosures. I started in Birmingham, Alabama. That was the first market. Um, and, you know, try to build teams of property managers, contractors, the agent, um, to acquire these. And simultaneously, I was then researching other markets because I had a desire for geographic diversification, um, which there's a trade-off there for because you lose scale that you have in a particular market. But that's that was the choice I made. So I then um, ventured into Tallahassee, Florida, Columbus, Ohio. Um, I've got one sort of on the outskirts of Cleveland, Ohio as well. Just looking for landlord-friendly states where um, I could get a good cash flowing return. And yeah, I, I sort of bought them. Um, I, I had come across the concept of, I believe it's called delayed financing where you can buy a property in cash and then you can cash out refi it the next day, essentially. Or in my case, once I'd finished my renovation, cause I other, otherwise I believe you had to wait six months. So I didn't have that sort of time <laughs> to, uh, continue to qualify for loans. Um, so I, um, yeah, I did that multiple properties at the same time, um, renovating, renting, refinancing, and then, uh, doing it with other properties. When my lending capacity dried up in sort of maybe May or June of 2020 was when I got cut off. Um, we switched to my wife being the lender, um, on a few as well. And yeah, we sort of acquired them rapidly that way uh, with cheap debt. So knowing that you have this super tight timeline, why real estate and not just the stock market? It was it was because of leverage, um, because of because I was confident that if I could find um, properties with a certain and the way I analyzed it was with cap rates. Um, I was from like the, the commercial real estate world where you look at a sort of unlevered return on a building and that's its cap rate. And you can, I compared that to the cost of my debt. My analysis showed that if I could get debt, which, you know, now it sort of it averages around 4% for all my debt. Um, if I could get debt, let's just call it 4% for everything. But find properties that had a cap rate of six or seven percent. Well, you're going to get you're going to get a good return on that if they truly are cap rates of uh, six or seven percent. And so, I realized that the, my analysis told me when I was buying these properties that even if the properties cash flowed zero and appreciated zero 
over 30 years, I was still going to get about an 8% return just from repayment of principal. So I considered that somewhat of a worst case scenario, and it was still comparable to the returns of the stock market. And my goal with this venture was to, going back to early on, was to bolster our financial position beyond being a sort of lean financial independent, um, you know, financially independent on our then expenses to be sort of truly financially independent. So I wanted to accelerate it. And that's how I view real estate. I, I honestly do not like real estate. <laughs> I do not like owning things that slowly fall apart. It's it's sort of stressful. Um, but I knew that this was an opportunity that I had that I might not have again if I never get traditional employment again. And I knew that debt was so absurdly cheap that um, I, I just thought it was something I couldn't pass up. And I had the time to, although this was quick, this is all I did, right? This was all I did for work. So, um, it wasn't overwhelming to do it, to do it at this pace. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was pretty confident that I could get some, some pretty attractive returns over the long term, just based on the, on the cost of capital that I had. Let's do a little bit of a, a no investor left behind here. We'll back up just on some of these awesome terms that Andy's thrown out here. Uh, you know, you're, he's saying cap rates. It's kind of a, a commercial real estate phrase for yield or dividend. I mean, these are, these are similar things, interest that you would get on something, but it's a, essentially what a property will earn after all expenses are paid. And he talked about, you know, pre-leverage, which means no mortgage, you know, no debt on the property. Um, just some some of these things, you know, leverages debt that he's putting on these properties. And I just want to call something out too. A lot of times people will talk look, you know, like when Andy's talking about putting all this debt on all these properties and then refinancing and pull the pull the money back out, it sounds it can sound risky having debt when people have this very risk uh, view of debt. And that, that's a real thing to be aware of, for sure. Debt can be very risky if you deploy it really not in a good way. But what Andy's saying too is you know, he there were these historic low, low mortgages that we all wish we had put on everything like Andy just did uh, back then that are were historically below the rate of inflation sometimes. And that's just just huge. So that if you were talking about a risk versus reward trade-off, Andy's thinking in his mind, we're going to lock in these amazing 30-year mortgages. And the example that you gave, Andy, of you know worst case scenario, I got no cash flow, I get no appreciation, which over 30 years, I don't see any scenario where you don't get appreciation with with the way global governments print money. I just it's like impossible. But even in that scenario, you know, you've got a more, you've got it paid down. You've got this very uh, cheap mortgage that just sits there for thirty years, which is a very unique thing uh, to the U.S. compared to a lot of other countries too. But good stuff. I mean, this is like all. And I just want to make another comment about the planning that Andy did through all this. You know, he just deployed things so fast, and it can kind of maybe seem like, oh, Andy had experience. You know, he had this job where he was doing this all the time, which is which is very true. But he also, this was not. We get, you know, you get questions from people. Should I invest in the market now? Should I wait till next year? Should I have done it? Well, I should have done it last year. You know, that's what everyone says. But you need to look at your situation and just make a plan for what is best for you. And that's what Andy did here. I mean, he, he knew that he couldn't get these mortgages anymore on normal conventional financing. There's other products out there that you pay higher, uh, you can pay higher interest on that investors do. But I mean, he just executed a plan and it happened to, it was going to work out in a worst case scenario and it happened to be a lot better because 
these are pro- properties I'm sure with the timing have appreciated really nicely and you've locked in this amazing debt on it. Tell where are we, where are you at right now? What like what's life look like today? What's what what are your plans for the next 5 years? Um oh, oh one more thing. One more thing I was going to say. I'm going to ask you for your age. What how old are you, Andy? Uh, I'm 34. 34. Easy. Spring chicken. Yeah, I was 29 when I quit. 29 when you quit. So so that's another thing a contingency plan. Like this is a the worst case scenario, you know, Andy has built himself a skill set too. He's has, he can always go back to work if he really had to. Or you know, there's there's this possibility of going back into an industry where he has a specialty in. So as you're on this financial journey, having these contingency plans of, you know, the real estate, building it up, building up your savings, building up your brokerage account, building up your skill set. So if you get burnt out and you need to go out for a few years and say you spend through to just recover, but you can go back into the job at that point. Um, I just wanted to pick up on that a little bit because that's that's an asset that you have that's not financial that people need to think about, especially if you do this at, you know, in the twenties or thirties, uh, age bracket, it really makes a difference. So sorry, back to the question. What are you up to today? What's coming in the next few years? From a financial perspective, I'll start with that. Uh, my goal actually is probably to downsize my real estate portfolio. So, you know, I haven't bought a property since October, 2020, and I don't, I don't plan to buy another rental property going forward. Um, I actually really like how Scott talks about Scott Trench, obviously, uh, talks about sort of portfolio composition and what you want your future portfolio to look like. And I thought a lot about that. And my ideal future portfolio has a lot less real estate. Um, because although, you know, I have property managers for all of them, except for one legacy, my, 2015 property that still has the same tenant and is no work at all. Um, despite that, you know, some of them are annoying and have hassle <laughs> that you have to deal with. And so I actually, especially with them having more equity now, so the return on that equity not being as attractive as it was when I bought them, um, I'd rather deploy that equity elsewhere. So I'm planning to transition my portfolio into uh, more. I've, I've started the last couple of years doing more sort of private lending and other ways to produce fixed income because that's really what the real estate was for. It was to produce fixed income and benefit from cheap debt. Um, so I, I plan to downsize some of that portfolio, deploy more into um, private lending um, because I would just love uh, to never have to sell index funds and create sort of a fixed income portfolio that covers expenses. Uh, that would be really nice psychologically, even though it's not necessary. You can, you can sell stuff, um, to create, you know, to create the income you need. Um, in terms of just, just general. So we've, we're, we're now in, uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, I've, I consider myself sort of having maybe three, maybe four part-time jobs at the moment. So, um, uh, one, I've been doing Rover, which is uh, dog walking <laughs> fairly prolifically the last couple of years. Uh, so I do a lot of that. It gets me out of the house, uh, even in the cold winter months. Um, so we've been, um, we've been dog sitting some dogs at our house as well. That's been a, a great sort of side hustle. Um, additionally, um, I mentioned sort of how I, I left my prior employer on good terms. Like we had a very good conversation, um, throughout the whole process of me leaving. And in early 2022, um, he had reached out to see if I wanted to help him uh, basically form a little private equity fund that um, provides equity for those same sort of physician-owned properties. So instead of arranging debt, 
injecting equity. And so I've been doing that. It's only a few hours a week because, um, you know, we've yet to, uh, sort of deploy money. So it's been fairly hands off from my perspective, but it's been a very interesting educational experience on real estate private equity for me and, uh, sort of scratches my intellectual itch, I suppose. So I've been doing that a few hours a week. Um, we had our we had our first daughter in May of this year, so right. it's been that's been another uh, another big part of this. Um, we you know we've been privileged enough to both be able to sort of stay home for a lot of these first few months um, and just just uh, intermittently working part time. So um, yeah, uh, we we've been doing a lot of that as well. And then I guess the other part time job is still managing the managers of my rental portfolio. So. Yeah. Downsizing your real estate portfolio will come with tax obligations and you can mitigate some of those tax obligations with the 1031 exchange, which is the selling of a rental property and then taking all the money and putting it into another rental property. Do you have plans to do that or do you have plans to just like you could just pay the tax? Um, you're such a tax master, Mr. $1,500 on $200,000. Uh, what are your plans to mitigate your tax burdens when you sell your rental properties this time? Good question. I actually was talking about this a little bit last night. I'm a member of this sort of Fin Talks group. Um, I know you've had Amberly on the show. Um, and I was talking about this with them because I have to get over the fact that I can't let the tax tail sort of wag the dog or whatever as it relates to this. Um, so yeah, I have no intention of 1031 exchanging into anything. So it will just be about strategically selling the properties over a period of time. Um, I'm not going to sell them all in one tax year, for instance. Um, I actually, because we did a lot of accelerated depreciation early on. We have a fairly big loss that I can use against one property. So one, you know, it's not going to cover, it's not going to cover a lot of sales, but, uh, yeah, um, I, you know, that will, um, along with some carryover loss from harvesting losses in my brokerage account, that will offset some of it. Um, but yeah, there, there's going to be, Again, that I'll, I'll have to pay. And that's, that's tough for me to take because I, I've still, I still arrange our finances in such a way that, um, you know, we get, we have to, neither of us gets benefits through either of these. My wife still works uh, part time at, at Denver Zoo, um, but doesn't get any healthcare benefits. So we buy healthcare on the exchange and I've arranged it in such a way that we get strong subsidies um for that so you know we'll lose that the year i sell a property really any property because we'll blow through the loss that i captured but so you know it'll just we'll have to pay some pay some capital gains <laughs> which will be tough to do but um I, it'll be okay because i think it um i think it will make sense uh for you know how we want to design that ideal portfolio so i'm not considering the 1031 exchange because my ideal portfolio contains less real estate um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't consider that as an option. Andy, it has been really cool having you on here. Um, I'm going to let Mindy wrap this up because she does it way better than me, but I've just, it's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing your story. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, this was fantastic. I learned a lot. I'm super excited for your next steps. I want to hear what you decide and how you handle the tax burdens of your, the tax burden of your sales. Um, I wonder if seller financing could be an option to help like spread it out over several years. 
Uh, and I, I'm just, I'm excited for what the future holds for you because you do your research, you dive deep into it, and then you take that educated plan and execute it. And that's exactly what I want all of our listeners to do. So thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners today. It was fantastic having you on the show. Thanks so much. It was really, really enjoyable talking through it all. So I appreciate you having me. And Andy, where can people find you if they're looking for you online? Gosh, I'm I, not long after when I quit, I remember I deleted my LinkedIn profile. That was actually a cathartic moment. Um, so I don't have, I don't have much of an online presence, but maybe we can put my email address in the show notes. And yeah, anyone who wants to reach out to discuss anything, I'd be happy to chat about this. I can talk about this stuff all day. So, And you can always email Mindy at biggerpockets.com and I can connect you with Andy as well. Great. All right, Andy, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. That was Andy. That was so much fun. Kyle, what was your favorite part of that episode? Uh, I, you can't get away from the financial planning. I mean, for me, I just this guy was speaking my language the whole time. He had contingency plans. He had tax planning. He, you know, we talked after the call. We found out he actually kind of wants to buy a hobby farm at some point. Like this guy is just just pushing all my buttons. I really, really had a good time talking to him, and people can learn so much from how he. He did so much in a small amount of time, but it was not by the seat of his pants. He really did his research. He really made educated planning decisions, as Mindy pointed out when we talked to him. It was, it was great. And he didn't have analysis paralysis. It is one thing to do all of the research and then just let it sit. And it's quite another to do all of the research and then take action. And, you know, it may not work for you to take the massive action that he took buying uh, 15, 19, 21 rental properties in one year, but he had a reason for it. He did it on purpose, educated. He knew what he wanted to do and he took action after doing the research. And that is my favorite part of his story is that he uh, he didn't let himself get paralyzed with fear. He's like, I'm going to do this. I feel confident that I have done my research and now I'm going to jump in. And he did. And not every property is a home run. Grand slam home runs don't happen very frequently in real estate. Uh, all those people telling you about all their grand slam home runs, those were purchased in 2010 at the very bottom of the market. So don't look for those. Look for great properties that are cash flowing well. That's what he did. Now he's got some awesome properties and he is, I'm so excited to see what he does with the properties that he wants to now sell because he's held them for a while and I'm excited for his future. So you can bet we're going to check back in with him in uh, in a few months. All right, Kyle, should we get out of here? Yeah, let's get out of here. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He is the peerless Kyle Mast, and I am Mindy Jensen saying, TTFN, little hen. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. 
Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.